What a delightful opportunity it is to assemble, to come together today. And we're so thankful for the presence of each and every individual, our membership certainly, and our visitors alike. We certainly would hope that each will be able to say it's been good to be here this first day of the week that you and I have been given the opportunity to worship the great God of heaven. As we come today, you may have already noted in the bulletin that one of the things about the sermon this morning has to do with authority. And in fact, we're going to discuss in some detail a lesson that I've entitled Matter of Authority, drawn from those opening six verses of the, of the 24th Psalm. With that in mind, maybe this initial statement on the next slide will be a fair one. Let me go ahead and make this statement. Brother Lester pointed out a moment ago that the ladies' Bible class will meet day after tomorrow, Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. here at the building. And as they meet for this opening time this fall for the continuance of the next several months, the topic that will be the thing that's considered by their study will be authority. Every lesson that they're going to consider over the next several months will involve the subject of authority. It'll be a beautiful and wonderful, powerful and very practical study. And I'd like to use this lesson to in fact lay a foundation or groundwork that may be of some assistance for the lesson day after tomorrow. Let me encourage all the ladies, please keep that Bible study in mind. I think you'll be charged by it. I think you'll be motivated to live closer to the wonderful teachings of the God of heaven. And I know you'll really be uplifted by gathering with Christian ladies as you think about teachings of the Word of God. As you probably can easily imagine, authority, or at least the idea of it, touches everything that we do in our service to God. And therefore, it'll be an expansive study for the ladies in that class. But today, our focus is going to be, as you can see on that slide, a set of foundational ideas. You and I live in a world in which the matter of authority is quite often questioned. On many occasions, it is in fact such that many will make the rather bold claim that there is no such thing. Well, you and I need to open the Word of God. That's our interest. That's our only interest. What saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. With that in mind, let me say this. Before we're done today, we're going to apply these concepts of authority to some far-reaching subjects like humanism, Christianity, ownership. I think all of those are interesting in their own right, and maybe much more might be said. But let me suggest we start this way. I believe it would be fair to say it would behoove us to at least give some thought to what do we mean by the very word authority? Can we define it? Does the Bible define it? I think you and I will find much from the Word of God on this very vital topic. It all begins in the following way. Would you be impressed to know that the word authority occurs 37 times in the English language in Old and New Testaments? 37 now, and 35 of that number is in the New Testament. 35 out of the 37 are found really in the books of Matthew through Revelation. Could that be perhaps an emphasis or at least a reminder that the whole subject and the nature of authority is a critical matter, vital, absolutely required? Now, may I be quick to point out, though, that the Greek word from which that 
word authority comes is the word exousia. E-X-O-U-S-I-A. And that word occurs 100 times in the Bible. That word, as you can notice, is often translated by the word power. The Bible speaks often about power. Now, may I say, there's more than one word that sometimes is translated as the word power, but let's at least give some thought to the far-reaching impacts of this Greek word when it does occur in light of the word power. In Colossians 2 verse 10, for example, there as Christ Jesus was Himself being described, it was described that in Him we are complete and that all principalities and powers find their thrust in Him. There's that word power. That's the word exousia. There's a little power associated to Christ. But look at the other one in Romans 13.1. There, this word exousia. Notice how it's translated and the place in which it occurs. Paul said, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power that, that other than of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Now, that's the word exousia. And yet it says, in the confines of civil government, they have been delegated and given power by the God of heaven. And as you and I will remember in the verses that follow, there was attachment to our obedience to those governments. Let every soul be subject to them. I hope each of us are already gaining a feeling that when this word exousia occurs, it relates to what's recognized with power what is recognized with authority. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, for example, speaking of authority, there are times that word exousia is translated literally with the word authority. In this one, the Apostle Paul was referring again to the second coming of Christ and talked about the fact that the kingdom will be delivered over to God and all power will be subject to Him. And the word's authority. All authority be subject to Him. Furthermore, in Acts 26, 12, Paul made a dramatic statement. He was recounting his own conversion. And in the process of that description, he said, I went to Damascus and I had authority to imprison and bind all that were of that way. Now you and I notice what authority meant. Those individuals gave him some pieces of paper giving him authority to imprison individuals that were Christians. Paul said, I had that authority. By this point, I suppose we each are beginning to see that authority involves several things. It involves the right to rule. It involves that power delegated by way of government. It involves the right of influence. But may I suggest there's one more thing that might well be noted. That other thing is this. Where there is authority, there is the expectation of submission and obedience. Let's face it, what right is there or what good is it to say that anybody has authority if nobody's going to obey them? They apparently don't have much authority if there are no subjects to them. And yet, Time and again, the Word of God testifies that where there is authority, there is some group of people expected to obey those people with authority, to submit to them. 
Let's develop some of that as you and I close this slide. With the existence of authority comes the existence of obedience. Maybe that's one of the vital points you and I should take away from this lesson. Whenever the Bible highlights the matter of authority, it highlights that someone is expected to submit to those, to obey them, to do what they expect you to do. To put it differently, the right to command. Now, you and I have often, I suppose, reflected upon that thought. Who in your life or mine has the right to command us to do something? Now, when you were growing up, were there occasions when perhaps your parents gave you an order to do something? And I believe all of us in wisdom figured out pretty quick that when Dad had a belt, it was the right thing to do to submit to his authority, or else there were some dire consequences that were quite frankly unpleasant. And yet the fact is, that authority was such that we respected that authority and did what was commanded. Anywhere you and I find authority, there is the expectation of obedience. And therefore, let's look at two Bible examples pretty quickly of this truth. One of them found in Matthew the 8th chapter. Would you please be turning with me to that location as we reflect on Matthew chapter 8. In verses 5 through 9, the following interesting discussion is made. Since this particular discussion will teach us much about authority, I'd like to read the fullness of those verses. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, there's our word, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. I wanted you and I to consider that passage based on the following observation. Here was a centurion, a Gentile man. And yet he had a servant at home that was somewhat ill and sick, and he approached Jesus, and Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The man said, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. I tell you what, you merely give the word and it'll happen. And then he used this explanation, I am a man who also has authority. When I say to this soldier to do something, he does it. And in verse number 9 he said, when I say go, he goeth. When I say to another, come, he cometh. When I say to my servant, do this, he doeth it. This centurion explained, I know what authority is all about. When I say go, those under me, they do what I say, they go. When I urge them to come, they come because I am over them in authority. When I give my servant instructions, they do it. He said to Jesus, I know this sickness is under your authority. If you say it to be healed, it'll be healed whether you come to my place or not. This centurion understood about authority. He knew that where there was authority, there is submission. There ought to be obedience. 
One more example perhaps is this one. In Acts chapter 8, verse number 27, this time it's the Ethiopian eunuch that's under description. And you remember well, I've put it on, on the slide for your consideration. This man, it was said, was the treasurer for Queen Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And yet the text goes on to elaborate on that and says, He had charge of all her treasure. One more time, do you notice the nature of authority? Here was the treasurer, and he had charge, not of some of her treasury, but all of it. May I point out then, where there is authority, there is the expectation of submission. There is the expectation of the rightfulness of commandment and those who obey it. Lest you and I then close that slide like this. May I point out to you that the matter of authority is the single most basic truth that identifies the church of Christ as distinguished from denominational bodies. Please think about that. The matter of authority... And the matter in which you and I as Christians consider it is the single most basic reality that distinguishes the church of Christ from denominational bodies. There are many, of course, religious organizations in our world and you and I may often have contact with them and someone may say, well, we worship just like you do. We just happen to have a guitar and a band. And they make that out to be a minor matter. And yet you and I lift that to the echelon of appreciation. No, it is not a minor matter. It boils down to the matter of authority. We don't do that because there's no biblical authority for it. Do you see the difference? Almost without fail, everything that distinguishes the church of our Lord from other religious bodies boils down to a matter of respect for Bible authority. You and I claim to do Bible things in Bible ways and only Bible things that way. And others are willing to admit other things for which there's no authority. At that point, as we close that slide, then let's make three applications of this principle we've just learned. Three applications that are very important and very practical. The first one begins like this. It touches the subject of ownership. For this discussion... Would you revisit Psalm 24? The psalmist develops this point in a dramatic way, in a powerful way. And I would like us to actually use the biblical text to move us throughout the discussion. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. For he hath, for he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in the holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Selah. Back to verse 1. Ownership. One of the things you and I can readily appreciate, who is it that has authority over you and me? Now, I'm not talking about merely our parents. 
And I'm not talking about the elders of the church. All of those points will come up in due course as this study proceeds in the months that follow. But for right now, may I suggest, it all begins with God. And David here explains to us why that's the case. Verse number 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. That they is every creature living on earth, every human being. Every one of us, the text says, belong to God because He made us. He fashioned us, and because of that, He has the right of ownership over us. We are not merely at liberty to do what we want here while we live on this earth. God made us. Sometimes it might be likened to this idea. If you or I, for instance, were to write a particular song, we would own that song. In our songbook, for example, you'll notice usually at the top of every one of those songs is who wrote it. That person owned that song. Nobody else in any way owned it but that person, for that person created it. He wrote its lyrics. He wrote its music. It belonged to him. Now, he may have sold it to some publishing company in Nashville or other places that it could then be put in these songbooks, but he owned it before he sold it. And it was his right to do with it however he saw fit. He could never sell it to anybody if that was his choice. In the same way, God made this universe... Because He made it, because He created it, it belongs to Him. He has exclusive right over it. Verse number 1 again says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. That word fullness identifies every element, everything that's a part of that world that He made. So He's not just talking about the physical planet earth. It's everything related to it any minerals you can dig out of it, anything existent in its atmosphere, anything in relation to what may be developed based on those things, it all belongs to God. He has it by right of creation. He made it. Now, there are going to be some more things that you and I might appreciate. Of course, this is a truth echoed throughout the Word of God, isn't it? In the opening pronouncement of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The very first thing the Bible declares is that there is God, but that He created the heaven and the earth. In Psalm 148, beginning in verse number 1, it is there highlighted that not only did God create this physical earth, He even created realities beyond our sensory appreciation. Things like angels, God made them too. Therefore, they are subject to Him because He has right over them as well. With all of that, why don't we note this? This truth is quite often presented in the Bible. Again, that everything belongs to God. Moses highlighted to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 10. You may notice in verse number 14, the resounding truth is presented. Now the children of Israel by that time, of course, were already wandering through the wilderness headed toward Canaan. And God through Moses reminded them, Look, not only are you headed toward the land of Canaan, this entire earth I made it, God said. And you need to appreciate that fact. And you need to honor me for that reason. Verse 
To that one, we might add this text in Psalm 50, verse 12. There, you and I might notice an interesting farming statement. The cattle on a thousand hills, God says, I made them. Now, maybe you and I know about keeping cattle or maybe other animals, and yet even those animals are such that the nature of them, God made them. They belong to Him. Among other things, that means when you and I utilize the features and the matters of this planet, we ought to understand that we are merely those who are given the privilege of using it for a little while. It doesn't belong to us in the final analysis. It belongs to God. And therefore, we should be dutiful to use it to His glory. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, it is there said that we are stewards of these things He has allowed us to use. That really changes the way that you and I look at our paychecks and things like that, doesn't it? Or this house that we live in, or this land that we supposedly own, it really isn't mine. Rather, He's going to judge me by the faithfulness with which I've used it. And if I allowed it to be a glorification to the cause and kingdom of God, that certainly has a lot to say about your talents and mine, doesn't it? Am I using the talents He's given me? For this verse says He owns me. Let's add to that the following. Verse 22, or verse 2 of Psalm 24 is the natural extension of this. Again, verse 1 had said, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For He hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Might I call your attention to the verbs? He founded it. He established it. What God did, you see, wasn't done haphazardly. And it wasn't done in a flimsy way. This earth has an integrity of lasting character. He established it. On occasion, you and I have heard about those who are fearful of nuclear weapons and bombs that might destroy this earth. It'll never happen. For it's established, and it'll finally be done away with when God says it will. And it'll be done away with, in the language of 2 Peter 3, by a great fire that's going to burn everything up. 2 Peter 3 verse 10. For right now, as you contemplate this establishment, I'd like to make some further applications using this text to you and me. Remember, we're discussing authority. One of the things we then immediately learned is, God owns me because He made me. And He owns you because He made you. And if that be true, Him having authority over us, we ought to do what He says. He has the right to command of me, and He has the right to command of you because He made us. Didn't Job say it like this? Or rather, the book of Job presents it like this in Job 33, 4. There, that marvelous inspired person pointed out this truth. The Spirit of the Almighty has made me, and His breath is in my, is in my body. He owns the very breath that you and I breathe. The air that we breathe belongs to Him. It doesn't belong to us. And His Spirit is what gives us life. May I again remind all of us, He owns us. And in the matter of that ownership, the psalmist makes this application. Verse 3, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Do you note that question? 
if it's true that God made the earth, and if it's true He owns everybody that lives on it, then He has exclusive right to say who will be the ones to go to heaven. He has the exclusive right to dictate who will be pleasing and acceptably declared in His, in his sight. And there's the reason for this next question. Who is it then that's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in the holy place before God? Only those who have responded to His authority. Only to those who've done what He says. Only to those who've been obedient to Him. Remember, where there's authority, there's the expectation of obedience. And therefore, the answer of verse 4 is this. I'll tell you, David said, who will ascend to the holy hill of God. I'll tell you who will ascend to this place. Verse 4, those that have clean hands and a pure heart. Do you have clean hands and a pure heart? And he's not meaning just hands free of grease and grime. The Bible speaks about lifting up holy hands before God. That needs to be all of us. To live every day subject to the authority of God, doing what He says, following His commandments. In that way, we're cleansed from the sins of our life and we're able to enjoy the blessedness of connection to God. But it goes on in verse 4 to say, "...who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully." Do you and I watch what we say? Do you see the practical application? God in His authority says we ought not say certain things. Do you and I lapse into doing it? Verse number 5 says, "...he shall receive the blessing from the Lord." This individual who respects the authority of God, who does what he says... That person, verse 5, will receive the blessing from the Lord. May we be quick to say that on the day of judgment, much will be noted about the nature of authority and those who did have respect for it and also those who didn't. It'll be too late, of course, then to do anything about the other side of that coin. May I say that our opening lesson then, based on the words of the psalm, has been a matter of ownership, but it also challenges us in this regard as well. A rather interesting phrase, humanism. Others might well call it secular humanism. I'd like to spend just a moment and help you appreciate the way in which this topic rather naturally enters our discussion today. Remember, we have been considering authority. Who has authority over me and over you? And we've learned God does because He made us. But there is a viewpoint often adopted by those in the world that's very different from that. For many of them, it falls under the heading of humanism. Now, humanism in many ways explains itself this way. Take the first five letters of the word humanism and you've got human. This is a philosophy totally surrounding the concept of elevating humans to an exalted place of position. I've tried to define it using their own slogan this way. Humanism is a philosophy that believes that humanity is capable of morality, and self-fulfillment without God. Their own slogan reads like this, Good without a God. 
They believe that it's possible to identify and, in fact, promote good without any recourse whatsoever to God or, in fact, to religion at all. Humanism does not have anything good to say about religion. Now, that would include, of course, what you and I are doing this morning. But as you think about the attribute of humanism, look at some of the immediate consequences of it. So if we want there to be fulfillment, but without any God, well, where do they turn? They would encourage nothing to do with religion. They would claim religion's rather bad. Humanism claims that you can find what's good merely by reasoning it, by thinking about it, by making careful observation and approaching things merely by basis of reason. Now, that simply isn't true. But yet, that's the approach that's taken. One more thing about that is this. You'll notice it about the middle of that slide. Where did everything come from? Humanism strongly endorses evolution. General evolution. Now, you and I have often appreciated the mistakes that are found in that. I would encourage every one of us to observe. This philosophy of humanism says... Humans can figure out your own way that's best to do things. You don't need to rely upon any authority like God. You can do it yourself. Whatever you deem is appropriate and right, that's what you ought to do. It's what humanism says. But now, isn't it true? Humanity has tried that. (laughs) And it didn't work. What happens when every man does what's right in his own eyes. Well, your mind has already raised to that point in the Bible. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, people tried it. It was an unmitigated disaster. When every man did what was right in his own eyes, then we find ungodliness, we find horrible things. That's the very set of chapters where you find the dismemberment of a corpse. Who in our world today would look with pleasure or at least with positive thought upon something like that. And that's what they did then whenever man did what was right in his own eyes. When any society, any society, stoops to the point that every person tries to decide for him or herself what's good, all you'll have is anarchy, chaos, and ungodliness abounding. It'll be a horrible thing. May I say that not only in the book of Judges, we have Paul's inspired record of this in the book of Romans. In Romans 1, beginning in verse 25, the Gentile world of that day, Paul by inspiration made this observation, they worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever, amen. Notice, they didn't give any thought to who made it, They gave thought to what had been made and elevated it to the status of a God. And in the verses that follow, you and I remember the extensive list of very sorry behaviors that had come descriptive of that. People involving themselves in these activities. And Paul said, this is worthy of death. And not only that, they they that consent to it, Romans 1.32. Point is, humans have tried this. 
it didn't turn out good. And may I say, in our present land today, it still isn't turning out good. When everybody chooses to do what they think's right, redefine marriage if you want to is what they're now telling us. It cannot be done. God created it. His definition is the only one that suffices because He made it. He owns marriage. Nobody has any right to change it in any way because we don't own it. But yet man has tried, and look at the mess our society tends to be in morally when people try to follow humanism. You'll notice because God owns us, humanism's a completely wrong philosophy. Completely wrong. But standing in stark contrast to that's the last part of our lesson. Point number three, the whole concept of a Christian. May I suggest to each and every one of us that as Christians there is yet one other way in which we are owned. We learned earlier today that God owns us because He made us, and that certainly is true. But could I suggest one more thing for those in this number that are Christians? You are owned in yet another way. That way is what I'd like us to develop here. Sin is a terrible thing. I understand that quite often sin is looked upon as merely an unpleasant thing, a trivial thing. It's not a significant thing. But the Bible doesn't portray it like that. Sin is so bad that it separates you and me from God. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Look what my sin did. It alienated me from God. And of course your sin alienated you from him. The one who gives life and the one who can take us to heaven. And because of sin we were separated from him. And yet, he sent his son. That son died on the cross. That son, you see, paid the price for sin for those who will, who will respect his authority. You know, Jesus' blood can cleanse anybody's sin, but not everybody's sin will be cleansed. Only those who respect His authority, who will come to Him, Hebrews 7.25, only they will be the ones whose sins will be forgiven. As you and I develop that point, could we then not say it like this? Jesus bought a group of people. We call it the church. Acts 20 verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 28 says, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. That word purchased means He bought it. The church doesn't belong to you or me. Jesus bought it. And therefore it belongs to Him. Now, we know the church isn't the building, it's you and me, and therefore, Christian, Jesus owns you and He owns me. Therefore, every day, every moment of every day, our thrust, our motivation, our goal should be to please the one that bought us, to live in harmony with His will, to do what He says. Notice again, God owned us in the sense He created us, and yet Christ purchased us in light of the, His death on the cross and the shedding of His blood. He bought the church. You and I then are owned 
and yet this second way as well. And maybe these points are well to be noted. I just ask you to appreciate Acts 20, 28, but maybe one of the strongest passages is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. Let me call your attention to part of that verse. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your mind, which are God's. Now the first part of that verse is very to the point. You are bought with a price. My Christian friend, that's true of you. It's true of me. We have been bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. And certainly the humanist philosophy is completely wrong. We belong to God because He bought us. Isn't it true that when we think about ownership, that idea is now directly before us? If you go out here to some discount place in Cookville and you buy something, it then belongs to you. The store has relinquished their authority over it to you. They no longer have right to say how you can use it because it doesn't belong to them anymore. You bought it. Well, isn't it then true? If Jesus bought us, He has exclusive right to express the terms and the character of what you and I are to be. Certainly that's a true statement, isn't it? As you can see as we close that slide, if you and I are then merely seeking to please men, no wonder Paul said you cannot be the servant of Christ, Galatians 1 verse 10. Didn't Jeremiah put it like this in Jeremiah 10, 23? Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jesus owns us. If you have been scripturally baptized, you are now part of the body of Christ. Notice, you're part of His body. He owns you. He should be able then to dictate, and you and I, in obedient response, must follow what He says. As you and I close that slide, may I say, a man can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, You'll cling to one, despise the other, Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve God in mammon. God made us and Christ owns us as Christians. With that said, don't you find it interesting how Jesus spoke of the parables in Matthew 25? You'll notice there was a one-talent man. And the master was very displeased with him. Did you, do you remember the language the master used? The master said, You should have given mine to the exchangers so that I could have collected it with usury. Did you notice the master didn't say that it was yours? He didn't say it belonged to the man. He said it was mine. May I say that's a vital lesson for all of us today. You and I are but stewards of what he's given us. It really still belongs to him. And with that, let's close our lesson on authority. In summary, haven't we seen this? Authority is powerful, and it's a great principle, and it's a truth echoed all throughout the Word of God. It all starts with noting authority, highlights the fact that with it comes the expectation of obedience. As far as practical applications, we noted these. Ownership. God owns us. Humanism is just not right in any stretch of the imagination. And finally, as a Christian, you and I are owned in two distinct ways. Although God owns us, Christ purchased us. 
today as you and I examine ourselves, as we, in fact, give thought to where we stand before God, are you being a responsible, obedient person to the ownership of Christ? If you're a Christian but you aren't living as you should, why don't you honor your owner? Come back to your first love today. We'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. If we could help you in that, we would certainly be excited to do it. But maybe you have never become a Christian. Don't you want to be owned by the greatest one of all? Don't you know that you cannot get to heaven without Him, John 14, 6? If today we could be of assistance as you respond to the gospel's call of invitation initially, believe in Jesus with all of your heart, repent of your sins and confess His name, and be baptized. Today, if we could help you in any of these ways, don't procrastinate another moment. Come at once while together we stand and sing.